Good morning. Uh, in case you don't know who I am, I'm Peter Rosner, and I'm a part of the adult discipleship team here at Bethany. And I get to be a part of our second week of Advent uh, here at Bethany as we continue this series called The Divine Encounter. And this week, we're going to be jumping into the same text that we looked at last week uh, in Luke chapter 1. Uh, but this time, we're going to be taking um, Elizabeth's character and move her sort of from the background uh, to the foreground of the story, and we will be exploring that text uh, through her eyes. And while we only get snippets of her story, um, because ultimately this is about uh, the coming of John and ultimately Jesus, and she's sort of in the background, I think there's something we can learn from her story um, and what it means to encounter the divine uh, if we engage with her and move through this story with her eyes. But before we jump back, uh, into the text and look at it through Elizabeth's eyes, I want to offer a refresher in some of the context that Andrew laid out so well for us last week, because uh, I think this helps to paint the larger picture uh, of what's going on here. And so the first reality is that we are entering the story of Israel during a long period of waiting and expectation and seemingly silence from God. Roughly 400 years have passed uh, since the, the, uh, the last great prophetic voice and so they're just waiting for something to happen. And during this time that we're about to, to enter into, uh, we know from last week again that, that there's King Herod and he was a cruel tyrant. And so the, God's people are underneath this, this oppress, uh, oppressive regime, really. And so not only are they waiting for a Messiah, but they're, they're desperately longing to be liberated from this bondage that they feel so acutely. And so it's within this larger narrative that Elizabeth's narrative takes place. And so let's keep this in mind as we enter into our text this morning. And before I actually just enter into the text where it really begins to talk about Elizabeth, I want to back up and start in Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 1, and just look at the intro that Luke provides. And so he says this, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. And so in this passage, Luke is telling us what kind of story he's interested in telling. And I think this is so important whenever we're engaging with any character in Scripture um, or any, any narrative is that we understand the larger story that's going on and we allow the author of the, the text um, to, to tell us what kind of story he's interested in sharing. It's one where prophecy has been fulfilled, where Jesus has arrived on the scene as the Messiah and eyewitness accounts have exploded. And Luke is setting out to verify these counts and do a thorough investigation so that Theophilus and others can be certain of what happened. He's setting out, uh, out to tell us that the hope that had been deferred, as Andrew said last week, has found its Messiah. And so as we wade back into our text today, not only do we need to keep this, this historic context in mind, this cultural context, but I think it's also important to keep the literary background and the author's intent in mind. And if we do this, we'll be able to learn from Elizabeth and her story and how she encounters the divine within this larger scope of God's unfolding plan and story. For it's always God's story that helps us to make sense of our own. And so let's continue reading now in uh, Luke uh, 
Again, chapter 1, verse 5. It says, When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of uh, Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. Here we see three things that I just want to draw out specifically um, while looking at Elizabeth. is one, that she was from the priestly line of Aaron. The second, that she was righteous in God's eyes. And the third was that she was unable to conceive. And what's happening here is actually a corrective lens being put on how people would have viewed Elizabeth's story. By Luke saying that she was from the priestly line of Aaron, righteous and obedient, and unable to conceive, Luke was confronting a common held belief of the time that not being able to conceive a baby was due to some sort of sin or a lack of God's favor upon your life. I, th- I think we also see this clearly in John uh, 9 verse 2, for instance, where his, uh, Jesus and his disciples come across a blind man and his disciples ask, was it because of this man's sin or because of his parents' sin uh, that he was blind? And Jesus said that it was neither. And so Luke is setting the story straight that Elizabeth's inability to conceive was no fault of her own. But that said, this short little throwaway phrase, Elizabeth was unable to conceive, would have been loaded and piercing and painful for Elizabeth. And while I don't want to dwell on this for longer than necessary, I know it's also a loaded and piercing and painful phrase for many in our church family. If you've been unable to have children or have lost a child, this particular scripture may cut deep. And while there's nothing I can say that will act as a relieving bomb, I want to carry forward a lesson that we learned from our Lamentation series. So I want us to listen and grieve together for a moment that the world is not as it should be. And hopefully as a community, we can increase our ability to sit with others whose struggles are different from our own. And perhaps it'll help us to feel Elizabeth's pain and others like her in a deeper way. And so to help us do this, to sit with this grief and to sort of bring about Elizabeth's humanity a little bit more to the forefront of our imaginations, I want to read an excerpt from a book uh, called He Remembers the Baron by a woman named Katie Sherman, who writes about her own journey with an inability to have a child. And it's a, it's a lengthier passage, it's a, a full page from her book, but I think it's worth um, just sitting with for a moment and allowing it um, to speak to us. And so she writes, One summer day, I stood in the middle of my kitchen with the phone clenched tightly in my fist. I had just learned that another good friend of mine was pregnant, bringing the count to a whopping total of nine. It was good news, really. My friend and her husband had been trying for years to conceive, and this was a cause for major celebration, but I didn't feel like celebrating. I felt like throwing the phone hard. The shaking started in my shoulders and then crept down to my arms and legs. It was not long before my whole body was convulsing. Next came the tears. They were silent and wet sliding down my cheeks and falling unchecked onto my shirt front. 
I opened my mouth to release the whale building inside my chest, but no sound came out. I tried to breathe, but the air seemed to hang suspended outside of my lungs, just out of reach. I don't know how many moments I stood there frozen in time with no air, no comfort. I just remember feeling stifled, powerless, overwhelmed by the unfairness of the world. I wanted to scream, but even that power had been taken away from me. I felt helpless and out of control, and like any injured animal backed into a corner, I got mad. With every jerking motion, my lungs involuntarily pulled in a swoop of air. I coughed and spluttered as my lungs heaved in and out, trying to replace some of the oxygen that had been lost. It was then that I finally cried. It was not the high, shrilly cry of a child in fear. It was a hoarse and guttural like the whelp of a dog whose leg is caught in a trap. In my despair and anger, I called on the name of the Lord. I cried out his name over and over again, not in praise and adoration, but in frustration and spite. Really, Father, is this the life you have for me? I sank to the floor in a pitiful, pitiful pile, dropping the phone. I remembered that it broke into pieces, the red battery spinning across the floor. I pounded my fists in my lap, rebelling like a child, not getting her way. So many blessings given to so many others. But what about me, Lord? What about me? She goes on to say, it felt so good to cry that day. Honestly, there was nothing else I could do. I had been dealt a bum hand of cards in life and all my chips were spent. Other than wait for the game to be played out, all I could do was complain to the dealer. And I did. She says, maybe you can relate. Maybe you have been just as angry at God, shaking your fists at him and gnashing your teeth. Maybe you have cried so hard that it has made you feel sick. Maybe you know the hopelessness, the frustration, and the anger that comes with having no power to change your lot in life. Have you too sat empty and dejected on your kitchen floor, certain that God has passed over for you in favor of others, then good. I do not mean to be flippant. I'm not suggesting that it's good that you're hurting. No, I'm suggesting that it's good that you grieve when you are in pain. And so if this is you this morning, if you're if you hear the words that Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and if you hear the story of Katie Sherman, and you have been there, you get it, or you've lost a child, then I just want to take a moment to pray for you, and to quite honestly join with the Spirit who is already praying for you. In Romans 8:26, we read, The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that could not be expressed in words. So would you just take a moment now and pray with me? God, we join with your spirit in groaning over the fact that things aren't as they should be. We pray specifically for those who understand what Elizabeth experienced. We lift up to you spoken and unspoken brokenness. Would you minister to those who have struggled in this way? Would you minister to them and in their places of deepest longings? And we pray that you would bring about new life. 
We invite you, God, even in this very moment, to allow your ministering spirit to be felt and recognized. We cry out, Abba, Father, hear our prayers to pass this cup of suffering, but then to follow Jesus' example and say, yet not my will, but yours be done. Amen and amen. Now, of course, while this text is specifically illuminating one sort of suffering, this concept of suffering or an inability to change what is beyond our power to do so and to only be able to cry out to our God to change our reality is common to us all. The loved one with cancer, the child with an addiction, the yearning for a family or the type of family that we do not have, the struggle with a sin that we can't seem to escape, or desiring the approval of a parent who never seems to give us the time of day, we can resonate with this emptiness, this lack, this powerlessness, can't we? And so while we know from last week how the story does turn out for Elizabeth, and as we see again, and as we will see again in a moment, that God opens her womb so she's able to have a baby, and these miracles do happen, and we should be a people who hope and rejoice when these happen, I want to camp out for a little longer with Elizabeth here in the waiting and the unknown. And what does it mean to encounter God here when hope is deferred and perhaps not even realized, at least in this lifetime? Because I don't know if your experience of being human is anything like mine, but sometimes my prayers aren't answered. Or at least in the timeliness or the way I would have liked them to be. Sometimes the prognosis is not good. Sometimes conceiving doesn't happen. Sometimes a loved one is unable to recover, and sometimes reconciliation doesn't occur. And what we know about Elizabeth for sure is that while her and her husband's prayers were eventually answered, the text reveals more to the story than simply an answered prayer. We read already that she and her husband were very old. And as we'll read in a bit, we see that Elizabeth called God favoring her with a baby as taking away her disgrace or her shame, which infers that she spent many years struggling with the feelings of being disgraced, ashamed, and inadequate. And yet the text tells us that Elizabeth was righteous in God's eyes. So what we can know for sure is Elizabeth and Zachariah get married and they hope to start a family but days turn into seasons and seasons turn into years of no children. One after another, the hope of having a child or more specifically a son fades. Their narrative becomes one where a child is not in the cards for them. And you get the sense that this is so much the case that even when an angel shows up to Zechariah, he has a hard time believing that this could possibly happen. They're so entrenched in this narrative. And yet, they remain faithful, obedient, and righteous. So the question perhaps we're left with is, but why? Well, one could answer that Elizabeth and her husband were just awesome people. Just awesome God-following people. Beyond all odds, they just, because they were excellent rule followers, they just remained faithful to God despite all that was around them. And one could read the text in such a way that says, well, if Elizabeth and her husband... Um, 
if we can learn anything from them, we just simply need to recognize that we need to be righteous enough and to, to pray enough and to be obedient enough. And then if we do that for long enough, God will eventually answer us and our prayers will be, be uh, fulfilled. But this doesn't sound quite right, does it? For one thing, it turns our relationship with God into a transactional cause and effect relationship. And this certainly does not meet the reality check of many of our lived experiences. So instead, what I think happened in all those years of unanswered prayer is that Elizabeth and Zachariah understood their stories and their lives within a larger cosmic story that was unfolding all around them. And they believed that there was a God, a a good God who was active and caring and personal, who despite all that was not right in the world was in charge of this larger cosmic story and that this God had remembered them. Katie Sherman, the, the author who we just uh, wrote that previous, read um, that previous expert, uh, unpacks this idea of God remembering this way. She says, in the Hebrew language, the word remember is a relationship word. When God remembers someone in the Old Testament, he loves them, has mercy on them, is favorable to them, and simply put, knows them. Or as we might say for this morning, a God who remembers is a relational word And God's mercy, love, and favor are words that speak to us about a divine encounter. I think this is depicted beautifully in a prophetic word Zechariah offers uh, after the birth of his and Elizabeth's son when he says this in Luke 1, 69 through to verse 79. Praise the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty savior, Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised though his holy prof- through his pr- holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sac- sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We've been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And then it's as if he turns from this macro view towards his own child. And he says, and you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way of the Lord. You will tell the people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins because of God's tender mercy. The morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and guide us to the path of peace. And so in the words of Elizabeth's husband, we now see how they recognize God's personal care and mercy towards them of opening Elizabeth's womb was intricately intertwined with God's overarching work of redeeming and reconciling the world to himself through his people. And that their God was a God who remembered them, that even when they couldn't see the hand of God in their lives, they trusted the heart of God. And what this text suggests is that God's remembering and God's redemptive plan is always and forever both personal and cosmic at the same time. And this is the hope that Elizabeth and Zechariah were holding on to. I think this is depicted beautifully when Jesus is hanging on the cross for all of humanity. And yet in John 19, we read this. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciples he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. 
this dynamic between God's overarching cosmic renewal of all things and God's care for us personally as individuals and families and communities are always intricately connected and quite frankly beyond our comprehension. And as we move forward into our text further today, we will see this interplay between God's cosmic renewal and the blessing towards Elizabeth and her husband intimately joined together. And so with that said, let's move into our text uh, once again. We'll pick it up in verse 11 uh, through 17. It says, While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must not touch wine or any other alcoholic drinks. He'll be filled with the Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with spirit and power of Elijah. He'll prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He'll turn hearts of the the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the Lord. Of the godly. And then jumping down to verse 24, we read that soon afterward his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months, saying, How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. And so, right there in this text, we see God's redemptive narrative and how his cosmic restoration comes together with the mercy towards Elizabeth and how they're wound together. God's cosmic plan for redemptive renewal and caring for the particular and the person collide. And what I also think this text points us towards is this pattern that God has of redeeming and restoring the world out of and through our brokenness, our own impossibilities and our death experiences. And while we know we won't experience our full and complete healing while here on earth, and we will continue to suffer in various ways. Elizabeth's miracle points us toward all of humanity's final healing. We remember and trust and recognize that even in our brokenness and suffering, there is hope. We read in Romans 8, to 24, For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised. We were given this hope when we were saved. Or as it says in the book of Revelation in chapter 21, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. So you could say that part of what it means to encounter the divine is to embrace this divine narrative that is bringing all of creation out of death into new life. 
is to recognize God's sustaining and renewing presence even in the midst of our suffering and brokenness and to recognize that death does not get the last word. It is to recognize and remember the goodness of God in your life even when you can't see the hand of God. But of course, this is easier said than done which I think is where the end of our text will be helpful for us. As we pick up in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. and You will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And what's more, Your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. And so the text continues a bit further down. A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived, and she entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. And then it tells us that Mary stayed with her for three months. And I think Here again, we see how the divine encounters us and cares for us through one another. Elizabeth and Mary are relatives showing how God cares about the details. And they get to share in the joy of this occasion with one another. But my bet is they also got to share in their worries and in the questions about what this all means together. Elizabeth was able to confirm and once again point to God's working in Mary's life. And then Mary is able to share how she recognizes her story as part of God's redemptive narrative. We see this when Mary says this, beginning with the the personal. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. And then she turns to the cosmic or the universal, and she says, He shows shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel. And remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. 
And so when Elizabeth and Mary come together, they are able to minister to one another in this way and actually to encounter the divine through one another. And this is all the more true for those of us who have the Holy Spirit residing in us and animating us and equipping us to participate in the body of Christ, to care for and to sustain one another. And so what's my main point today? Or or how does this text being read through the eyes of Elizabeth, what does it reveal for us? Well, first, I think Elizabeth reveals that long seasons of uncertainty and even suffering are part of what it means to be human in a fallen and broken world. And more specifically, are part of the journey of faith. And that we are able to sustain our faith by encountering God and recognizing God's work in our life as we open ourselves up to the reality of that our story is a part of his larger redemptive narrative and that he personally continues to care about both deeply. And while, of course, opening ourselves up to God's story in this world and our lives doesn't mean all suffering comes to an end and that all prayers are answered as we would like them to be, but when we recognize and house our story within God's larger plan, we're better able to discern the movements of of the Spirit in our life and God's comfort, His mercy, and His provisions, even in our darkest of experiences. And second, on this long road of faith, Elizabeth and her spiritual friendship with Mary reveals to us that God offers us one another to encounter the divine in and through each other's lives as a way to sustain our faith in the desert seasons of our life. And then to celebrate with one another when we do recognize the miraculous breaking into our world. So what's my challenge for us? It's simply this, to choose to move into or remain in an intentional community in the new year. Whether this looks like home church or CR or a youth group or a regular but less formal connection with a few friends. Where you can share life with one another. To help one another remember God the God who is good and who is rolling out a cosmic plan to reconcile and redeem all things to himself, including us, and so that we can in fact recognize and encounter the divine in our midst and within the context of our relationships with one another. And this, by the way, is not a ploy simply to get you involved in Bethany programming for the sake of getting you involved, but because this is how we truly believe God invites us to live and dwell and encounter him in this world in the context of intentional community that is drawn together for him, by him, and for his glory, which is where we find our renewal and our restoration. And with that, I want to just leave us with a few more concluding words and a summative statement by Katie Sherman once again. This is found in the last chapter of her book, And she writes this. God still remembers his people today. He remembers you. He loves you, has mercy on you, and is favorable to you in Christ Jesus. He has a relationship with you because of what Christ did for you on the cross. You put on Christ in your baptism, and now God knows you as his child and heir. Your name is written in the book of life, and you are remembered by him unto life everlasting. 
you may feel forgotten. You may think that God has passed over you in favor of others, but that is not true. God does not ignore your pain and suffering, nor does he wish for you to be childless, or I might add, suffer in any other way. Your barrenness or your suffering is not a curse from him, but a terrible consequence of living in a fallen world. It is evidence not of God's rejection, but of man's sinfulness. God is anything but oblivious to your pain. He suffers with you. Going down into the depths of Sheol to pull you out with his own pierced hands, he knows you in your baptism and loves you as his own, forgiving your sins and strengthening your faith through the hearing of his word and partaking of his holy supper. God may not open your womb or alleviate your suffering as he has for others, but he in his wisdom still remembers you every day by providing all that you need to support this body and life. She goes on to say, God remembers me too. He still has not made me a mother of my own child, but he has made me a daughter, a sister, a wife, a friend, a teacher, an aunt, a godmother, and even a writer. I get to share in the suffering of my barren sisters in Christ and in return celebrate the joy and peace they experience in Christ's love. I still ask that the Lord will remove this cup of barrenness from me. But just as Jesus showed me in the Garden of Gethsemane, I can, with his help, trust in the Father's perfect will. So would you just close with me now in a word of prayer? God, it can be difficult to be a human, as you know. Suffering is real. And sometimes it's hard to see your hand at work. It's hard to know what it means to encounter you in this world. So Jesus, even in this moment, would you offer us a sense that you are with us, that you love us, and that you are for us. And may you draw us into deeper relationship with one another. That, may, that we may learn to encounter you in the context of these relationships. Where we share in our suffering and our brokenness, but also in our joy. And in the ways that we do see the miraculous and your hand breaking through. As you help sustain us in this life. And keep our eyes pointed towards that future glory where you'll wipe away all the tears and there will be no more crying and no more death. Amen.